I'm TikTok, you don't stop. And I'm the ghost of Carl Yastrzemski. And this is Planet of the Meerkats. How's it going, Ghost? What's up, Tick? TikTok? <laughs> Definitely go by Tick. The, uh... like the most, that's like the most unappealing nickname besides Dick. <laughs> uh, actually, you remember you remember the the friend character in Growing Pains whose name was Boner? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I liked Boner. All right, Dave. What are you drinking? I'm all I'm drinking again the Noble Tendencies Czech style Pilsner from nice. the Lost Abbey in San Marcos, California. I've got an intergalactic dad pants. That is by, amazing. By Gil, by Gilman Brewery. Uh, <laughs> I see some dad jeans and some khakis on the can artwork. So pretty excited to drink this one. Let's do let's do this, Dave. I'm gonna crack it. I'm wearing dad dad pants today too. Are you? Kirkland? I, I I had to go into work. No, they're not Kirkland. They're something. I don't know, but they're like slacks. <laughs> they could have very all, well come from come Costco. Had to look all professional and shit. Yeah, and especially since I went into work today, and because most people are still social distancing, I literally was alone in my office the entire day, <laughs> dressed <laughs> and, up and, nicely. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't see anybody at work. <laughs> so you sent me a a pack of Topps baseball cards, and these are. Clearly bought off eBay. They're from 1993. And you have a matching set. Well, not matching, but you also have an unopened set. And we're going to open these together to kick off today's podcast. Right? I actually saw them. At, there's a comic store here in Escondido in the mall. Oh, no way. And I saw them there. Um, and they had a bunch of different types. So I opted for some 93 tops. Were they really $1.50? They were. I thought this was the original price tag that was on here <laughs> i just assumed yeah. they were ebay that's great that you got them at an actual comic shop yeah that's that's why i bought them i was like damn a dollar fifty that's that's pretty cool now do you remember what the tops stadium club was this a like a a, a subset of cards or if uh, i remember correctly this is when they tried to compete with upper deck oh upper yeah, deck yeah. came in with because tops was, was always like cardboard right yeah and upper deck came in and they had the really high quality photos and the the foil and stuff on there. Mm -hmm. And so tops tried to compete with that and they released some higher quality cards. They were okay. still quite, weren't quite up to upper deck standards, but they were also cheaper. Upper deck was like five bucks a pack. Yeah. I see here. It says 14 super premium picture cards. So, yeah. okay. And it says super premium. So, you know, it must be. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this, Dave. <laughs> All right. Get some sound effects going on here. Ooh, I can already see the pictures. Oh man! First off, very fancy. I have a a giant. Oh really? Admittedly, a it? giant. I don't remember, but Mike Benjamin. Oh, I remember Mike Benjamin. Let me guess. He was a um, shortstop. Uh, yes, he was a shortstop. He was very. He was pretty good at hitting against lefties. <laughs> Two fifty. But man, he writes for his kryptonite. He was only one hundred three. <laughs> so he he'd be a good platoon player. He'd be good in, in sort of today's baseball landscape where you have all these like, you know, people who are 
good at a certain role. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. My second guy looks a lot like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Nice. Oh, it's Luis Gonzalez. He was on the, uh, I believe he was on the Diamondbacks when they won the World Series in 2001. Wow. I got Don Mattingly, my first nice. card. Nice. <laughs> and Don Mattingly's mustache should have a separate yeah. card. Uh, Freddy uh, Benavidez. Never heard of him. Ooh, I got somebody from the Blue Jays, Devin White. Oh, Cecil Fielder. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I got uh, Mark Guthrie on the Twins and Brian Hunter from the Braves. Ooh. This guy here, Mark, Brian, Brian Hunter. Looks like he's a pimp, man. He looks cool. He does. He looks awesome. I love him. <laughs> okay. Let's to round this out. I got Scott Cooper, Troy Neal, uh, Kevin Apier. Oh, I remember Kevin Apier of the Royals. I got Mark Davis of the Braves. Oh crap. I got Kurt Schilling. Oh, Kurt Schilling's a total <laughs> he was dick. On the Phillies. Yeah. What, <laughs> what a total he's a boner if there yeah. ever was one. <laughs> oh damn. I got Mike Piazza. Remember Mike Piazza? <laughs> I do. Remember there was a guy that went to our school whose name was Mike Piazza? Yeah, I, remember that. <laughs> I was on the Dodgers with Mike Piazza. Nice. You should put that on your resume. <laughs> the rest of these guys are total no-names, except I do like Zane Smith. Okay, I got a couple of good ones coming up. I got Brian Barnes, Kevin Tapani, but then I have Fred McGriff. Oh, nice. And Bo Jackson. You got Bo Jackson? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and he was on the Sox. Nice. <laughs> And then, do you remember? Do you remember when people would get the socks hats in high school, and then they'd make it say "sex" by yes, coloring in that one little line. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, my last, my last one worth mentioning was Howard Johnson from the Mets. Mets, yeah, Hojo, good old Hojo. Well, that was fun. That was super fun. What are we talking about today, Dave? This is another get to know the Meerkat special. We're going to interview each other. These are always fun. Yes. My, I don't know if you noticed, but my questions all were somewhat thematically related. They were all yes. kind of about mystical things. I dig it. I mean, I'm into sort of the mystical things. I think you asked me better questions, but we'll, you know, it'll all even out in the end. Well, you know, I remember in the last one, I asked way a bunch of silly questions and you like got more serious. So I wanted <laughs> to get more serious this time around. It's like we've reversed roles. <laughs> <laughs> so my first question to you is... I know you're an avid reader. Obviously, you're an avid reader because you bring so much knowledge to this podcast, and we have a, a freaking meerkat library on the website. <laughs> um, so I know this is going to be a hard question for you, but what's your desert island book? Imagine you you wash ashore, you only have one book. This is kind of a stupid question because it's like it's like you're packing for getting lost on a desert island, uh, <laughs> and you only bring one book. But just go with it. All right, you only get one. I want the how to make rafts for dummies. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, you see, I, I would have different throughout my life. I would have had different ones. I mean, Lord of the Rings would have been in there at some point. Brothers Karamazov. I love that book. But I think right now, if I needed to choose a desert island book, I would choose Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Whoa. Yeah. Which it's an amazing book. It's all over the place. And I think you could read it like 10 times and still like see different stuff in it. And is it, get, is it really long? It is incredibly long. And it is one of the more difficult books I've ever read. So take any recommendation with a grain of salt. Like you got to engage mm-hmm. your whole brain when you're reading this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's quite good. And uh, it kind of touches on everything from economic theory to programming to like how to best distribute uh, heirlooms when a rich relative dies. <laughs> wow. 
That sounds good, actually. Yeah, I it's I would it, I would highly recommend it, but like I said, you really gotta like it's not one of those like sometimes I'll read a book and I'll be reading like two or three books at once and just pass them mm-hmm. off. Like, like this one takes all of your attention. I guess any long any sufficiently long book would kind of get the job done because you could <laughs> you could kind of ruminate on sections of it. I could see yep. like one Q eight four being a good desert island book. Yeah, oh yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good answer. All right. I got a question for you. All right. So you are an accomplished mixed media artist who has had art shows. You've been published and you teach graphic design. What inspires you and how do you choose your artistic mediums? Okay. So embracing the term artist has always kind of been a struggle for me. I think that, you know, I tend to be a little self-conscious about claiming that. And partially it's because of the way that I create, which which is usually really spontaneous and kind of of the moment. And uh, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll make something and I'll immediately like destroy it or remix it or kind of upcycle it into something else. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, I've oftentimes called myself like a craftsman or like a a creator more than I will say an artist. You know, I think in our society, it's like you see, you hear people talk about fine art and it's generally considered to be this kind of like high-minded pursuit. It's like conceptual, it's often difficult or challenging. And mm. artists who gain this this cachet are often working within like the same areas of inquiry for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the goal is often to like do this work to get noticed and represented and then book exhibitions and sell work and build a career. And, yeah. you know, kind of in contrast to that, I'm like a bee. I buzz around to a lot of different <laughs> things, land on a lot of different flowers. And I usually like to describe what I do more like improv. I talk about it like that a lot. It's like the idea of approaching my work with that like yes and spirit. Like I don't I don't ever really say no to anything. Uh, and that pertains to like when people ask me to collaborate or when I'm like working within something, I usually am always trying to like move it forward mm-hmm. and just like ride that wave. But like, I don't know. I know everybody who's an who's a creator probably or probably everyone in the world has imposter syndrome at some point. And I catch myself like kind of preemptively de-emphasizing the seriousness of what I do. Um, so I'm really trying to change that and just accept and embrace like that artists can be different things for different people. But to answer your question about kind of what inspires me, I, I've tried to lately think more about the through lines in what I do. I'm inspired a lot by nature and color and um, symmetry and lines and and things that are organic that always inspires me plants. Um, I do a lot of work around plants, but like thematically what I've identified is that I like, I'm kind of trying to like challenge the, this sort of idea of permanence mm-hmm. inside kind of implied in this whole concept of art, that art is this thing you create and then it has value. Yeah. Um, and I'm calling into question the idea of that art can even have a value because I think the important thing is the, the act of creating it and not so much what you create. So like a big thing that I've tried to do is to like be a teacher and teach people that they, they can center their process and really think about what value that has for them as opposed to being centering and prioritizing the results. So that was a long answer. I kind of feel like we all, we're, we're all always learning. We're like lifelong learners. Um, <laughs> and so I try to really think of myself as like that idea, like permeating everything I do. Well, the other day, Abigail was criticizing me because, by the way, that was a good answer. <laughs> Abigail was criticizing me because I didn't remember the details of one of the characters from one of her video games that she was telling uh-huh. me about. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to learn anything. I'm done learning. And she's like, 
dad, that's the opposite of what they teach us in school. You should be learning your whole life. That's amazing. Right. I love Damn that. It. <laughs> she had me dead to rights. It's true. I mean, I love that that, that that's what kids are being taught because mm-hmm. it is an approach, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a way of thinking. And to, to have that idea in your mind when you're young yeah. and to live that way is like super important. So I've always admired how you kind of go for it, right? You've, you've mm-hmm. experimented and done a lot of different art projects and you have a lot to show for it. And I, I just think that's really cool. Thank you. Um, talking about the impermanence of art, I have a follow-up question. Okay. Do so you remember a while back Banksy, he sold a picture and then as, as soon as it sold, somebody hit a button and it immediately was shredded? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts on that? Like, <laughs> I mean, I kind of respect the, the, the subversiveness of a lot of what Banksy does. Um, mm-hmm. the idea, I think, I think a lot of it is a send up of the art world and mm-hmm. there's value in that. The art world to me is kind of laughable anyway, because yeah. it's all kind of a farce and who, who decides what is good anyway? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I was, hanging out with people this weekend and they were talking about uh, someone made a comment about like there was nothing that good that came out of the 90s and I know it was a joke but like I'm just kind of over the judgmental nature of everyone feeling like they get to be a critic nowadays it's like yeah I would rather see people be creators than people be critics you know or at least try creating before you're a critic but anyway to get to the point of what you're you're asking me that's a good pull quote for the episode by the way yeah (laughs) (laughs) I guess I guess to get to answer your question, yes, I think that that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope the person who paid all that money for it uh, did, did, felt like they got they got their money's worth because that was like a classic Banksy move. <laughs> it totally was. Yeah, I, I, I have to think. I have to say, I think Banksy is he's like Batman. He's probably his real persona is somebody who's out in real life and he's acting mm-hmm. totally opposite to throw people off the scent. So eventually we're going to find out that Banksy is like Eric Trump or something. What if Banksy is multiple people? I mean, I don't know if anyone, if that's like ever been a, a serious consideration, but I always Maybe. wondered that. Yeah. It's like a collective of people doing work. The Banksy collective. They're yeah. all, each of their names starts with a letter of Banksy's name. Hasn't so it like, been speculated that Banksy is one of the people from the band Massive Attack? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Which, I, hey, it's possible. Yeah. I, I have another question for you, Dave. Okay. What would you what would you consider to be your real life superpower? So I th- I was thinking about this because I don't know that I have any bona fide superpowers. Uh and I think what I would identify as my superpower is actually also a bit of a weakness. Cause I find myself like when I'm at work and we're talking about like strategic planning or you know, some project or whatever, I'm always thinking like three or four steps ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think on one hand, that's really good because it helps me sort of anticipate what's coming. And I find out that find that I tend to be right a lot of times. But on the other hand, like I don't always I'm not always 100 percent in the conversation right now. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of detracts. So I think that's my my real life superpower. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's strategic thinking, right? It's like mm-hmm. harnessing that. Yeah. Which is which is always a struggle, I think, when you're <laughs> yeah, when you're a, a planner. <laughs> uh, okay, so follow up. If you could have a comic book superpower, what would it be? Okay, have you ever seen? Well, I, I think we've talked about in the show the movie Dark City. Yes, and there's like those those mis- with with Rufus Sewell. Yes, not Ray Liotta. Yeah, for those who <laughs> listen to previous episodes. <laughs> um, and 
so they're in the in the movie there's the bad guys and they don't walk anywhere they always float just like a foot off the ground mm-hmm. and i always thought that was really cool i would love to be able to just float a foot off the ground everywhere so would you also be able to fly or is it just the floating no, just the floating just right off right off right off the ground it's kind of cool it's kind of creepy yeah. yeah i mean i would burn like zero calories at least i burned some from like walking around and going up steps and stuff in this case i'm just literally floating everywhere i look like baron harkonnen from dune good answer good answer okay what is so i got this one from nelly because she's constantly asking me these obscure questions but what is your fourth favorite color i don't care about your first three I had to make a list of my top five just to answer this question. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you number four, and then I'll go back and do the whole five. Number four is actually black. And I understand that black is not technically a color, but as a designer, like I have kind of my my go-to colors, and mm-hmm. it's it's these five. Like I use them all the time. Uh, but black is like obviously like the most powerful neutral color that I use. Uh, but But number one is bubblegum pink. Number two is marigold. Number three is rust. Obviously, four is black, and then number five is royal blue. Wow. I mean, if you look at our, our show art, all, I know. <laughs> all those colors come through. I know. It's like, I'm pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm impressed you had a fourth favorite color, because I'm like, Nelly's like, what's your favorite color? You know, red. What's your second favorite color? Um, orange. What's your third favorite color? I don't know. Like, <laughs> Kids love to just drill down into the minutiae. This is yeah. like they like to catch you off guard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So coming around to it, sort of uh, what we were talking about earlier with lifelong learning. It's funny that I had this question, but before we even talked about it. Mm-hmm. But if you had the time to develop a completely new skill at the age of forty-one, what would it be? Learn a language. Oh, nice. I, I would because you know I know English fairly well. Do you not count <laughs> French? I don't know French. I took French. I didn't really remember much. But I would love okay. to have that natural aptitude to be able to pick up languages. So what would you learn? Uh, I would learn Spanish, obviously, living in California. <laughs> that would be, like, super useful. Way more useful than French. <laughs> living, like, 30 miles from the border, too. Yeah. I mean, I would love to learn German and Italian and, you know, some of the Eastern languages, like Japanese, you know, all the... I, I just... Mm-hmm. I really wish that I was that was easier for me to pick up, but... Mm-hmm. I lose interest very quickly when I try to learn a new language. Have you have you ever tried to use like Rosetta Stone or any of those like learning I've, software? I've used Duolingo. It didn't last very long. I'm afraid to do a Rosetta Stone because it's such a high cost of yeah. getting into it. Maybe that in and of itself would motivate me. When you used Duolingo, what was the what was the snag for you? Um, I, I was going really strong for like three days, and then I was like, oh, I'll put it off a day, and then after a while, it was yeah. a year. It's, it's like working it's like working out or doing anything you don't want to do the, yeah the, exactly the minute you pause it it's done <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man i mean yeah. maybe maybe part of this uh podcast should be we we have like a, a bet to see who can learn mandarin first or something oh crap we'd both lose <laughs> <laughs> i think we the problem is if, like unless unless you have someone in your life that you can like really speak to all the time and practice that language, then you just don't get enough opportunity to put it to use. Yeah. I mean, Emily, Emily knew Spanish cause she like lived in Nicaragua for a few years. And when I met her, she still was pretty fluent, mm-hmm. but now she's lost most of it. And it's really hard for her to pick it back up. It just 
like it really is a kind of a use it or lose it sort of thing. Well, I remember when I was would work at Pizza Hut, there would be these uh, Mexican families that would come in, and none of the family would speak English except for like the little boy. Yeah, and he'd be like this little seven year old, and he'd come up and he'd order the pizza for the whole family. And I just always thought it was really cool. It's like this little boy, and on one hand, it kind of sucks he has this responsibility, but on the other hand, like he's fluent in two languages and he's seven years old. It's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. So is, is it my turn? What is your go to album when you're feeling down? I'm assuming right now what you're primarily asking is if you're feeling down, you go to a, a sad record to kind of like really wallow in your blues that or you go to like a happy one to bring you up. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. However, you react to being sad. Let, let's entertain the idea that you go to a sad album first. So I think it's got to be either or by Elliot Smith. This is just a devastatingly beautiful and sad album. There's no skips on this one, man. Like every song is great. <laughs> But honestly, anything by Elliot Smith is going to like feel it's going to satisfy that like wallowing in your pain because uh, the music is just beautifully sad. Can I just say that in the Lego movie two, uh-huh. they're singing a song and one of the characters and they're, they're singing about being sad. And one of the characters makes reference to how he finally gets Radiohead. And after he yeah. says that, <laughs> that man turns to him and says, you should totally listen to Elliot Smith. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> It's so true, though. Actually, I think for for my money, the two the two saddest Elliot Smith songs, and you know everything's personal, right? You know, mm-hmm. for me, these two just hit, and they're they're not neither of them is on either or. They're actually tracks four and five off of his album Figure Eight. Mm-hmm. Everything reminds me of her, followed by Everything Means Nothing to Me. It's just a back to back killer song combo that always just destroys me. If you are an Elliot Smith fan or Elliot Smith curious, um. Watch the documentary Heaven Adores You, which I think came out in like 2014. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he was just such a tragic figure and it's really a moving film. Okay. But I went further than this and I thought about <laughs> a couple <laughs> other songs, just like songs that I think put me in different frames of mind. The song It Never Entered My Mind by the Miles Davis Quintet. Miles Davis was on Impulse Records in the mid 50s and he wanted to kind of move up and go to a bigger label. So he was going to go to Columbia and Columbia was trying to recruit him, but he couldn't really get out of his contract. So he basically cut like four albums worth of material in 1956 to to free himself from his Impulse contract. And they they like dripped that music out over the next four or five years. Um, in like four different albums. Wow. But this song was recorded in 56, wasn't released to 59. But um, famously, like part of this quintet was uh, John Coltrane, like young John Coltrane, but he doesn't actually play on this particular song. So this was a, a, a 1940 Rogers and Hart show tune. Um, mm-hmm. And it was recorded by Frank Sinatra and a bunch of other people, but Miles Davis did it in 1956. To me, I interpret it as being kind of melancholy. So... I can put the song on and it just like kind of hits the heartstrings in the right way. So there's the song PPP by Beach House. Beach House is one of my favorite bands. Um, this particular song, and I'll make a little playlist of these, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. But this song has this like really kind of elliptical sort of cadence and pattern. And it kind of mm-hmm. feels like you're walking towards something that you never arrive at. But it like builds and builds and builds. And it's like this towering wall of feelings. And then to kind of move on to songs that I think kind of get me out of a funk, two songs mm. in particular. One is Lust for Life by the band Girls. The song was was written by a band that uh, was kind of big in San Francisco when I lived there about 10 years ago. 
And even when the song came out, it made me like wistful for being young. Um, but <laughs> now, particularly, it's just so it like amps me up because it makes me like feel like I can do anything. But it still makes me wistful about my time living in San Francisco because it's like, you know, it's about the city. And then lastly, the song Such a Night by Dr. John. The song is like it's magic in a bottle. It's just got it's just got something to it. If you've never heard the song, Dave, you should check it out. It was made I, famous. I have not. It's made famous because Dr. John performed it with the band in the film The Last Waltz, which was about their last concert in 1978 at Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. But the song feels like, to me, it's like that moment in the, you know, like when we were in our 20s and like mm -hmm. you'd walk out the door on a summer night and you knew it was going to be just like the dopest night in the world. And you, you're, <laughs> all your friends are there and you're like, we're going to go, we're going to go have a good time. And then. You're just walking home from the bar at 2 a.m. and you're like, hell yeah, that was a dope ass night. That's what this song is to me. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, what's the most frightening thing that you've ever done? So is the intention of this question something that frightened me or frightened other people? Frightened you. Frightened me. Okay. I, well, I, the first thing I thought of was when I was a kid, and I'm sure my mom didn't buy this. I was over at my friend's Keith house, Keith's house, and we decided to call my mom. And tell her that somebody had kidnapped me. Oh my god, <laughs> that's horrifying! <laughs> and she immediately knew that knew it was. I'm sure we did, we sounded like little kids doing this, and so she immediately knew and started yelling at me and made me come home. But like as a parent, I can't help but think like, man, that's really that's really effed up that I did, <laughs> I did that, dude. Can you imagine how you would feel <laughs> if Abigail did that? Well, especially if she actually did it in a way that was believable. Wow, <laughs> the most frightening thing I've ever done isn't really something I actively did. It was when my daughter, Nellie, she had a, a burst appendix when she was two. And so we had to bring her to the emergency room and everything ended up being okay. But the surgery ended up taking about an hour and a half longer than they said it was going to. Mm. And that was, I mean, I was just terrified. I, I, you know, it's like, I couldn't, you know, they, they even came out and said one point, one point that everything was going fine, but like, they didn't come out and explain what it was taking an hour and a half longer than it should have. And, uh, yeah, I was just, yeah, that was definitely the scariest. So like afterwards they explained it, right? Like there was a perfectly reasonable explanation or was it complications? It wasn't even really complications. I think it just took a little while. You know, especially with a kid that young, I think they take their time, especially when they're, yeah. they're wrapping things up. You know, they don't want to leave scars. They don't want, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I was just so relieved when yeah. she came out and everything was okay that it was yeah. fine. It's uh, like Madeline. Do you guys read Madeline? I, yeah. Yeah. Like well, in the they, original, in the original one, we were reading that the other night and, and Marla was like, wait, what do you mean? Kids have to go to the hospital. <laughs> I'm not going to tell her about this conversation. <laughs> she knows Nellie had to have her appendix out. <laughs> oh man. Well, and the the worst thing about Nellie too is we'd gone to the doctor that day cuz she was complaining about pain. Mm -hmm. And they were like, "Oh no, it's not her appendix. It doesn't that doesn't happen with kids this young." And they did an ultrasound and they said that it looked fine and then it was like in the middle of the night she started screaming so we took her back in and it, it not only was her appendix but it had burst which is you know life-threatening at that point wait how did they not catch it on an ultrasound it was it's you know with the her body was so little yeah. it was hard to tell and there was a lot of swelling like her bladder was really inflated and mm -hmm. so a lot of stuff was just covering up where the appendix was gotcha um, so they couldn't get a really clear view and being a two-year-old, that's like, it's hard to tell what's wrong sometimes, like that she could even communicate that. But I guess if you're in that much pain, she... 
Yeah. Well, and you know, yeah, it's like she was screaming in pain. I mean, it wasn't like she was being coherent about it or anything. Yeah. Um, we even had her do the jump test because we've been told if a kid has appendicitis, have him jump up and down. You'll know real quick. And we had yeah. had her do that, and it didn't. It it like she wasn't enthusiastic about it because she felt sick, but uh, it didn't cause a lot of pain jumping up and down. When I envisioned this question, I thought the answer would be something along the lines of like some like daredevil sort of thing you did when you were young. But yeah. it's true as a parent, it's like frightening things are like the possible things that can go wrong with your kid. <laughs> it just now takes I, it to a different level. I did ride Adam's dirt bike once and almost drove it into a ditch and like flew <laughs> off at 30 miles an hour and hurt my leg really bad. That was more stupid than anything, but yeah, that was pretty scary for a second there. I thought I was going to go <laughs> flying into a drainage ditch. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, mom. Yeah, I, you know, my 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 uncle had gone gone through a couple of motorcycle accidents uh, when he was younger, really bad ones, and so my mom had maybe promised never to ride a motorcycle. So, <laughs> uh, when I got home, I was like, "Yeah, uh, we were loading my friend Adam's dirt bike." into the truck and it fell on my leg mm, wah, wah. yeah <laughs> not believable <laughs> kids are kids think they're being slick but yeah now okay. as you're you're a parent you know that you'll always catch your kid in a lie yeah they're really transparent now, i mean the thing the kids my, my kids have always liked to lie about the most when they were little is like do you have to go potty it's like they're sitting there and they're grabbing their crotch and they're doing their potty dance and i'm like yeah. you have to go potty no yeah. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. If you pee your pants, you're going to be in trouble. I think I'll go try. And they hear going to the bathroom and it's like a racehorse. And yeah. Yeah. Like, how much pee did you have in you kid? It's so frustrating. Why didn't you just go? I would pause, pause your cartoon for you. I promise. Well, Abigail would do this thing where she'd run to the bathroom and we would go to the movies. And I started letting her go to the bathroom on her own. And she'd run to the bathroom and be back like 30 seconds later. And it's like, there's no way you went to the bathroom, peed, washed your yeah. hands, and came back to the movie theater in 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, Anyways. Okay. Next question. If the purge were real, and I'm not going to ask you if you if you would participate, because I think everybody would say, of course not. But then in reality, would really consider it. <laughs> but if the purge were real, what would your purge mask look like? Gary Shandling. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what would yours look like? Oh man, I think I would be it would be a giant bear head. Oh nice. Like a really oversized bear head. Mm-hmm. Like not just one that yeah, like really yeah. oversized. On the same theme as before, kind of, but what is okay. the most what is the most embarrassing thing that you've done? <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is this is gonna be really stupid. Um, <laughs> I can't wait. In the like, I don't think a lot of people would, would consider it embarrassing, but I felt really dumb. So I had to go. There was a, a lawsuit happening in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and Robert Shapiro, you know the OJ's lawyer. Oh yeah, he subpoenaed somebody from our office to come down, and basically wanted us to testify that this degree didn't exist in the year that this guy was claiming he got mm-hmm. awarded his degree. So. I brought a binder full of all these old catalogs and flew down to LA on their, on their dime. 
we kept telling him, like, you sure you want us to do this? But apparently you got to have somebody there in court to testify. You can't just say it. So I get down there and I end up sitting outside the courtroom all day long. And then they don't need me. Like the very act, fact that I was there was enough to like get this guy to tell the truth that mm-hmm. his degree was, he was claiming it was something more specific than it actually was. So afterwards, Shapiro took all, took me, me and like a bunch of people on his legal team out to lunch. So we're at lunch mm-hmm. and you know, we're just kind of chatting and I'm like, oh man, I'm kind of I'm eating lunch with a famous guy. This is kind of cool. <laughs> and uh i'm talking and i use the word extrapolate except i said extrapolate because i don't think i had ever heard yeah somebody uh like use the word out loud i just read it <laughs> and i didn't associate it with like the written version of the word and everybody looked at me and i'm like they're like what what word is that i'm like extrapolate like yeah it's, it's a yeah. pretty common word I've... and they're like oh you mean extrapolate and like everybody just laughed at me and i felt really dumb yeah <laughs> <laughs> You should have just like at that point pronounced pronounced pronounced. See now I'm doing it. Pronounced, <laughs> pronounced everything incorrectly for the rest of the meal. Less embarrassing, but I think ended up. I think it came across more as a funny joke. When I was in high school, we went to UC Davis to do the egg drop. Which, for those who don't know, you'd put an egg in contraption, mm-hmm. drop it off the physics building, and the egg had to survive. And I was chatting with a professor and my teacher, and. I said to the professor, I'm like, oh, what are you a professor of? And he said, ag engineering. What I thought he said, egg engineering. <laughs> so I started laughing. And I was like, oh, egg engineering. That's really funny. And he's looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> turned out, no, he was an agricultural engineer. <laughs> I love but, that. Uh, like He's like, this is what I do all day long is I build little contraptions for <laughs> eggs. Egg and engineer. Yeah. So Of course. Uh, but yeah, in retrospect, I should have played it off because that would have been a pretty funny joke since we were at an egg drop. <laughs> so wait, is Robert Shapiro like a like a decent dude or or what? Yeah, he was he was cool. Like, yeah, he was really nice. Except for when he laughed at me for saying extrapolate. Wait, where did he take you to lunch? Oh, it was like this place across the street from the courthouse. It was like one of those little places you can just get sandwiches. I got the impression like people would just eat their lunch there every day type mm-hmm. of thing. But the, the courthouse in LA was awful because it was like 10 floors and there was one elevator. So it took 40 minutes to get out of the, out of the building. Oh my God. All right. This is something that I would, I would, I would think about when I was a kid. So I wanted to ask you the same question. If a knight from the middle ages were to appear on your doorstep, where would you take him for dinner? Keep in mind, he would be very, very hungry. So would it be too on the nose to say medieval times? No, well, there isn't one. There isn't even one up here, so it doesn't matter. I can't. Take but I, would, I mean, I would like. I would think like, oh man, I would take him to like Carl's Jr. and buy him four hamburgers and watch him eat all of the hamburgers. And what I would do is I would take him to like an izakaya place. So we'd get some Japanese whiskey, nice. and some. We'd get like <laughs> just a bunch of asahis, and then we'd just keep ordering small plates. It's <laughs> like all just like you've never had Japanese food, but you're gonna love it, and. It'd be heaven. I think he'd like that. Yeah, that would probably probably be cool. Um, would you get him some mead to drink, or would you just drink sake with him? <laughs> I would just drink sake with him. <laughs> <laughs> like nowhere serves mead. Actually, there is a place around the corner that serves mead. I would say, yeah, you live near San Francisco. There's all sorts of crap in San Francisco. I'm sure there's someone who sells mead yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah, you can find almost anything. A but... lo- local mead house. We'd be like. <laughs> I'd be like, come on, hop on the back of my electric bike. We're going to go to a couple different places. 
uh, we'll get the meat and then we'll go get Japanese food. And then maybe later we can get a turkey leg. I don't know. I don't know where the night's going to take us. <laughs> Bunch of guys in flannels and tight leather pants wearing Birkenstocks <laughs> drinking their mead. Exactly. I don't have leather pants, but now you, th- crap, you made me think I should mead. get some. <laughs> Do you believe in reincarnation? You know, I've always thought that some degree of reincarnation makes sense. And if you believe in like that there's a spirit, it would make sense that people have like a spirit or a soul. It would make sense that in some cases it comes back. And there's also a part of me that wants to believe in reincarnation because of the sort of the, the justice aspect of it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's a complete dick, you know, they're going to come back as like, you know, a beetle or something stupid. Yeah. And <laughs> there was an interesting story that I read where this guy found out after he died that he was actually reincarnated as everybody who had ever lived. And so he, he had, he was like, he was not only Hitler, he was also Jesus and he was, you know, the kid down the street and his own parents. And every time he would die, he would just get put back into another, another prop body. And so he literally was, had been reincarnated as every human ever. And it was all, all engineered by, I can't remember if it was like an alien or an angel or something, but they were basically prepping him so he could ascend to the next plane of existence. And whoa, this level of like being reincarnated a billion times was required for that. Damn. But I always thought that was kind of a cool, a cool, cool take on reincarnation. That is, but I don't, I don't really believe that like people come back as animals or whatever. But I think in certain cases there are times when you know a soul transmigrates after someone dies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. But where does it go? Yeah. <laughs> it just stops being anything? I don't know. It kind of blows my mind. <laughs> okay. What is your greatest irrational fear? So I've always been kind of a hypochondriac. So part of me thinks that maybe it's that I like always think that I have cancer. But that's kind of a lame answer because like I think everybody's a hypochondriac to some extent, especially with like WebMD. Um, <laughs> Yeah, don't go on. But, don't ever go on WebMD. But but I think I think the better answer, the one that's funnier, is that I actually still sometimes get scared about like aliens being in my house, like like space I, aliens, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, I totally know what you feel like. Yeah, because like I know mon- <laughs> I know like monsters and ghosts, like whatever, like you know they don't exist. But like aliens, like dude, you never know. Like <laughs> they could be like my my daughter could be an alien. And she might jump out and like reveal her like gray oily body. I don't know. <laughs> like who knows? Like that shit's scary. <laughs> That's awesome. No, you know, I remember I used to, cause I love it if, if I watch a TV show or a movie or something and it scares me. Like, I just think that's so cool. And I used to watch the X-Files and just be terrified <laughs> of like all the abductions and stuff. It's like that's some scary shit, man. Especially since it looks like, you know, UFOs are probably going to turn out to be real and you know, Okay, so so related, here's my question for you. More likely to be true, astrology or aliens? Oh, aliens. I think a- the existence of intelligent life somewhere in the universe, I think, is virtually guaranteed. The universe is so mm-hmm. huge. And astrology is literally just shit someone made up. <laughs> <laughs> like, people try and put, like, a, a patina on it. Like, it's, you know, oh, it's based in blah, blah, blah. No, no. It's yeah. it's literally just a shit, some, some shit somebody made up. And if you, like, it's fine if you want to go to the newspaper and 
read your horoscope or whatever. But if you have any any compunction of thinking that that's actually based on something real and not just what some uh, you know low paid editor in a newspaper writes, it, you're totally wrong. Uh, astrology is nonsense. I do like thinking about myself as a Libra being balanced. Mm. Like I do, I do think there's something to, I don't think it's like scientifically true or accurate, but mm -hmm. I think there is value in the story that it allows people to tell them to themselves. Sure. But yeah, I kind of agree though. Aliens. I, I don't think, I don't think UFOs are aliens, but I do agree with you. Like, like, or the statistical chances of there being aliens in the somewhere in our universe are very high. <laughs> There's a, a book called the Mothman prophecies by John Klein. Mm -hmm. And he, he, t it's a, it, it's an interesting, interesting book. And it talks a lot about like aliens and paranormal phenomena. And a lot of it's probably mm -hmm. nonsense, but his theory is that the UFOs that we see are actually from another dimension rather than from mm -hmm. outer space somewhere, which I think mm -hmm. makes a certain amount of sense since, there's so much distance between us and other other planets yeah, and things. Yeah. What's a movie you'd like to go back and view with a full house on its opening night? Okay, so here's my thing about like the viewing it, it with a full house and expecting it to be like blockbuster sort of situation is that like if you go and look at the like the top grossing opening weekends of all time, they've all happened in the last 20 years. Most of those movies if they were actually good, I probably saw them at some point in early in their run anyway. The big ones, like the the greatest movies of all time, like most of those probably didn't have like, I don't know if they had like big opening weekends where you would go and get that energy. Like, I don't remember if for sure we saw some of these movies on opening night. Like I was thinking about The Matrix. Like, oh, yeah. But we saw it like very early when it had that energy to it. So I was trying to think of one that that was maybe slightly before our time that we missed. And what I came up with was Pulp Fiction. Nice. Yeah. That movie's amazing, and on one hand, but at the same time, it's like was totally different than from anything out there, and was mm -hmm. really challenging. You know, mm -hmm. the it was wasn't it wasn't easy to understand, but the dialogue was like perfect, and the performances mm -hmm. were awesome. Yeah, I think it was two twenty twenty, maybe it was twenty nineteen. I don't remember, but there was the twentieth anniversary of the film Go. I don't know if you remember this movie. Yeah, but it was directed by Doug Lyman, and it was like he had done swingers and then he did go and then he did the born identity <laughs> those are three very different movies but go was i remember it at the time really liking it and katie holmes was in it and uh brecken meyer and a bunch of stars who were like kind of like teenage stars at the time and i think it was like at very underrated but i rewatched it recently and it was pretty good um and i read someone the other day was talking about it on twitter and they said that in retrospect it probably didn't have a lot of buzz because it came out so closely behind mm. Pulp Fiction. Because oh, it yeah. had a lot of the time, sort of like shifting chronology, like um, yeah. gimmicks that Pulp Fiction had. But I think that Pulp Fiction really was the, kind of the first movie that did it that way. Yeah. Um, and that seemed really, really new at the time. But I don't know what opening night for Pulp Fiction was like. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but it would have been cool to see that in the theater as an adult. And like yeah. fully be be there and present for it, um, instead of watching it basically as a fourteen year old <laughs> <laughs> on, on VHS. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember. I think my favorite movie going experience, and the movie was trash, 
but I remember really enjoying going to see it at the movie theater is American Pie. Oh yeah, and I dude. think it was like <laughs> a perfect confluence of like I was, you know, we were in a movie theater of a whole bunch of like other guys the same age, and people yeah. were just yelling at the screen, screen, and like it was just like the the perfect like things just sort of intersected in the right way for that. Yeah, movie. yeah. Uh, I feel like that movie, like that type of experience, just like could only happen at that point in time. Yeah, it was just a time in our society when. <laughs> that movie could even exist <laughs> and then people would go to the theater and be excited about it like now can't even imagine that but oh yeah well it's hugely problematic like all of the themes in the movie and, and you know and it's just not a very good movie i, re- yeah. I remember rewatching it a few years later and like this like, is, is not very funny <laughs> <laughs> all right dave do you have any superstitions I tend to be superstitious about, I don't know if this is even a superstition, but there are the, there are ways that people can sense others that are close to them. Mm-hmm. So I remember when my uncle got in a car. Well, I don't remember this. It was before I was born, but my uncle got in a motorcycle accident and my mom tells a story about how she knew something was wrong, like immediately. And then mm-hmm. they, like somebody came to the door to tell him about it. Uh, and you hear stories about that all the time about how mm-hmm. like, somebody's brother or sister or their parent or their child, but it's, it will happen. And they like immediately know something is wrong just in the pit mm-hmm. of their stomach. So sometimes I'll be sitting there and I'll be like, I'll, I'll feel, I'll feel like something is wrong. And then I start to get paranoid. Like I'm going to get a phone call mm-hmm. or something and nothing happens, but like, <laughs> I think yeah. I, I do subscribe to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the collective consciousness sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before on the pod. Like, yeah there's something that binds all of us together and there's like a disturbance in the force almost. Yeah. Okay. What band or singer would you like to go back and see live in their heyday? Okay. So my first thought was like, I was just trying to think of like people who were contemporaries of, or I guess acts that were big at the time that we were when we were growing up. So it was like, Oh, uh, the Tibetan freedom concert in 98. That would have been amazing to go to. Miss that That's one. That's put on by the Beastie Boys, right? Yeah. Uh, early Lollapalooza. Like, it would have been hard to go to that. Or like early Warp Tour. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of got into Warp Tour. But early Lollapalooza, I think we were still really young. We were like 14. Or I remember you sold me your Warp Tour tickets. You and Jason had Warp Tour tickets. And yeah. you sold them to me in Wayland because Corn had canceled. Yeah, and I went, and <laughs> the replacement act was the Roots, which was awesome. That that's like <laughs> now it's like, of course, that would have been way better. I mean, when you're 17, you don't have good judgment. Yeah. Um, but then I, I I was like looking up a couple other like big concerts, and one that stuck in my mind, I think, was like totally historic that would have been cool to be at was Dylan in '65 at the Newport Newport Folk Festival, mm-hmm. where he went electric, and it was like caused this whole uproar right because yeah people were pissed about yeah. that. yeah and it was like right after he had released um like a rolling stone that would have just been cool to to be like a time traveler and be like <laughs> yeah dylan yeah fuck them if they don't get it man yeah you know <laughs> but then yeah. it also would have been cool to be at like something like uh coachella when dr dre and snoop dog came out with tupac's hologram Nice. Like, totally different vibe than Dylan at, at Newport, but would have also been awesome. <laughs> oh, man. I think it would have been really cool to see some early Rolling Stones when they were still yeah. like yeah. in Britain and performing like the small places. They just had like such great energy. 
and I love their their early music. It's when they were super young, they were like yeah. basically teenagers. Myth, Mick Jagger's mouth was still normal size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Moving on. Do you have a sliding doors moment in your life? And so I think I was, you know the reference, right? Oh yeah. Paltrow. Yeah. So like after this moment, there was two me's, right? There's yeah. the yeah. good me and the the sad me. Yeah. That... <laughs> well, just more like like <laughs> like there's two you's, not necessarily that one is like a sad bastard or anything. Well, doesn't like <laughs> I, like isn't the premise of the movie like she misses the train and so doesn't catch her husband with another woman and things end up going shitty in her life. Whereas in the other the one where she catches the train, she gets home, finds her husband in bed with someone else and like dumps him and things go better, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, so, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that it had to exactly follow that plot line where you take the train <laughs> home early and you find Bronwyn in bed with um, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I'd be like, okay, I don't love this, but I can, I can, <laughs> You'd be like, I knew this. I knew this moment would be upon us at yeah. some time. <laughs> so get it out of your system. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about like because I remember I was sixteen and I was applying for a bunch of different jobs and I ended up getting a job at Pizza Hut, and that just ended up being such a like working at Pizza Hut ended up being such a seminal moment in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I got really close with all all the friends that I still keep in touch mm-hmm. with. That's sort of. You know, a lot a lot of stuff kind of stemmed from that. And just imagine, like, if I had gotten a job at Target or something instead, mm-hmm. things would have mm-hmm. been totally different. And you know, who knows? Yeah. Maybe I'd still be working there. <laughs> I mean, you could take this concept and apply it to every single decision you've ever made and been like, well, yeah. what if I didn't do that one thing, right? I made a left last, last week. Yeah. When I turned off my street and got hit by a car and now I'm paralyzed. What if I got a carnitas burrito instead of this chicken burrito? Oh, carnitas, delicious. <laughs> now Dave's going to go get a carnitas burrito. <laughs> I think we're on the last one, right? Yep. Okay, do you think Thanos was right to snap half of all people out of existence? So there's a poetry to, to it, right? Because it's it's random, right? So it's about as fair as you can get. I think you're trying to bait me into saying yes. And, you know, I'm not a Buddhist because if I was truly a buddhist i think i would have to be vegan because i wouldn't want to cause any harm to a living creature but as close i want to be as close to that as possible and live in line with my values on this one so i'm going to say no one deserves to die no one deserves to die yeah okay even though if you're you're preventing suffering i don't believe that any (laughs) one person should be the arbiter of that you know fair enough i think i agree with you i just thought i'd put that out there I recently watched, I don't remember the name of this Star Trek TNG episode, but it's, uh, you've probably seen it. It's the one where Riker and Data and Worf are on an away mission on this planet. And this crystal entity comes and starts like just shooting this like death ray. And, and they, they manage to escape into a cave and they save themselves. But the whole planet is eviscerated of all organic life. And... Long story short, this woman is brought on board. She's a scientist. She's like the foremost expert on the crystal entity. And it turns out that she has a vendetta against it because it killed her son. Wow. And so she has a vested interest in destroying it. And she's working with Data on figuring out how to find it 
Picard finds out about her vendetta and basically says, even if this crystal entity is is like wiping out civilizations in order to feed itself, we are not the people to make the decision about whether it lives or dies. Again, it's it's the same concept. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think I, I, think, I agree with you. There's something to be said, though, for the idea that there are too many people out there and there's no fair way to yeah. sort of prioritize some over the other. So if you had a way that would like equally dis- distribute the pain, that might somehow be more fair. Maybe I, maybe I need to rewatch those films to see like with that in mind, like Thanos as an environmentalist. Well, so in the movies, that's that was his motivation, which I think lent him some at least sympathy because uh, you could at least understand that. Right. But in the comics, he essentially falls in love with the personification of death and mm-hmm. he wants to impress her. And so in order to impress her, that's why he wipes out half of all life because he wants he wants to get some 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 dead booty. <laughs> <laughs> but like in the movie, what if, what if they had made him like less of a dick? Like he's just kind of like he just comes off as like a megalomaniac. Yeah, he does. I don't know, man. Uh, this was a good combo, though. Yeah, we covered a lot. Of, we covered a lot of ground. So next week we were actually going to talk about deep past, deep future. Yeah, I don't think either one of us was prepared for the conversation this week, so we're giving yeah. ourselves another week. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be good, though. I hope. I can't wait to talk about what's going to happen in a hundred thousand years or a million years. Let's do a million Ooh, years. A million years. A billion years. <laughs> we're all gonna. <laughs> We're all going to be gremlins. We'll be the heat. It'll be the heat death of the universe. A million years from now, not only will we be gremlins, but we will have evolved into gremlins and then evolved back into people and then back into gremlins. So it would have been like a multi. <laughs> all right, my friend. I am TikTok. You don't stop. And I'm the ghost of Carl Yastrzemski. And thank you for joining us on the planet. Oh, the meerkats. Walking around. <laughs> I still don't remember the lyrics. <laughs> like a bag full of holes. <laughs> Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison. And our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.